You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. This is our sermon series, Experiencing Jesus. We will explore how the gospel embodied creates a culture, a feel, and an experience. The gospel of Jesus says something, and it does something, and both are important. You may be seated. Thank you, Ashley. In case you've never met, my name is Lyle, one of the pastors here. And just like what's been said a few times, just want to say welcome. And we are thrilled that you're here and joining with us on this little, little bit of a cool Sunday. I got out this morning and it was a little, little, little chilly. Yeah, I took a little out for my car to warm up, but I made it here. Amen. All right. One of my favorite movies, uh, really, it's a musical. It's probably not a movie. Uh, primarily, it's, uh, it's primarily a, mu- a musical that actually became a movie, is uh, Les Miserables. Anybody with me on that one? Anybody like that? Super. Yeah, a few people clapping. So it, if you've never, uh, never seen this, one of my applications, and I'll say this again at the end, is for you to watch uh, this movie. It came out a few years ago. The play's been around for a really long time. Uh, and I'm not giving anything away if you've never seen it. So I'm just giving you uh, something that makes you want to maybe go and watch the movie. Um, there's one scene, it's sort of the beginning of the movie that sets kind of the trajectory of this entire musical and, and the movie itself. And it's right after Jean Valjean is, is released out of prison after doing uh, hard labor. Um, you know, it's, it's, it gives a feel of just the hopelessness that he feels. He's still kind of rejected by society, hard to find work, all this kind of stuff. And then he eventually lands uh, in the home of a Catholic priest. And this Catholic takes him in, uh, feeds him, um, clothes him, you know, provides a place for him to have refuge and respite. And he actually has has him sleep in his own bed, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, kind of a a, a unique little scene here that we weren't expecting. Uh, But in the middle of the night, as he's trying to go to sleep, Valjean um, uh, succumbs to temptation. And he actually gets up and steals all the silver in the home. And as he's running away, eventually the scene shows that he gets caught by authorities and he comes back. They take him back to the bishop in order to kind of question him. And to uh, Valjean's uh, surprise, uh, the bishop is adamant in saying that he gave the silver to him. And Valjean is like just kind of blown away. And to prove his point, uh, he gives him two more candlesticks, almost saying, hey, uh, you, you forgot a couple of things. And then the the police leave. Um, The bishop urges Valjean to use this silver to become an honest man. And so out of that scene is the rest of this movie and how this actually changes this man's life. I love uh, what Hannah Anderson talks and says about this scene in her book, uh, Made for More. She says this, the bishop's gift wasn't as much the silver as the grace that he extended And this grace begins a process of transformation through which Valjean can finally or can finally begin to see the potential of his own life. He can finally see his true identity as a person devoted to God and his fellow man. And here's a sentence that kind of sums up what I'm trying to go after this morning embedded in John chapter eight. And that is this, the transformation is not immediate, but it begins with grace. So we're in a, a short series uh, that we've entitled Experiencing Jesus. And, and all we're trying to do with this series is answer a couple questions. One question is, is what it would feel like to be in a room with Jesus? 
If we had the opportunity to sit down and have dinner with Jesus, what would that experience be? What what would we experience internally inside of us as we are with Jesus? And then the second question is that we want to just talk about, like, how do we better embody this as a church, as individuals who are called children of God? How do we live this out and embody this more? We convictionally believe that the gospel not only says something, it also does something. It creates a culture, a vibe, a feel. I love how Ray Ortland talks about this in his book uh, called Gospel Culture. He says this, a church needs to not only pay attention to what it says, but also needs to pay attention and be sensitive to what it is to be, the vibe, the tone, the intangibles of that church. And so today, I just want to spend a few minutes talking about a culture of grace. I mean, I, I don't think I would do our church uh, justice, so to speak, that if I didn't spend some time and talk about a culture of grace, something that we have um, not, we've done this perfectly, but we've really worked hard to try to create a place over the last 11 years where you really actually feel that the pressure is off, that we actually come and celebrate this one-way love of Jesus that's called grace. And so if there's one thing I'm trying to get across this morning, and I'm not talking about everything that encompasses grace, but I do want to kind of land on this one idea, and that is this. If you don't remember anything that I say this morning, please remember this, that grace comes first. What changed the very life of Valjean, I know he's a fictional character, But grace started first for him, and I would put before you that that's how it begins with every single one of us in this room. Grace comes first. I think John chapter 8, of all the stories in the Gospels, uh, it's really embedded in this story of this woman here, how grace coming first is how Jesus let out. So I want to kind of work through this text uh, just kind of unpacking three different scenes. And in these three scenes, I think we, we do see something about cultivating a culture of grace here. And so I want to kind of work through these and then highlight what we see here. But before we jump in, I want to uh, make you aware of just like for some of you, if you've got your own Bible, you'll probably see that these first 11 verses are in brackets. Uh, anybody have that in their Bible? Okay, awesome. Yeah. So, and you might have like a little footnote that basically says, and uh, the reason why this is bracketed off is because in our earliest manuscripts of the book of John, this story is not in there. And so um, I, here's where I'm at on that. I, I, I obviously, I, I do not believe this was in the book of John because our earliest manuscripts of the book of John do not have this event or story. But I also believe, as most scholars believe, that we believe this is an actual event of Jesus. That this actually took place, even though it may not be a part of the book of, of, of John, may not be a part of his gospel. It was an actual event that took place. And one of the main reasons why we would say that is it sure feels a lot like Jesus. Amen. This is not in any way contradicting his character, as well as there's nothing in this story that speaks in a contradiction to the doctrine that we believe in all of the Bible. And so that's where I'm at. And I feel a ton of freedom and preaching this sermon and preaching a text like this, even though we don't find it in the earliest uh, manuscripts of the Gospel of John, we do believe that it was an actually true event. So let's look at scene number one, starting here in verse two. Look what John says, or 
the writer of this event says, at dawn, he, meaning Jesus, went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they asked him this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So there's tons of questions that this story uh, brings to us. You know, uh, one of them that I will talk about here in just a few minutes, you know, that little, like he bends down and starts writing in the sand. What in the world is Jesus writing in the sand? Everybody kind of wants to know what it is that he's scribbling there. Uh, you know, other questions that we see here is where's, where's the man? I mean, it's right that the, the law says that you are to stone an adulterer, but it doesn't say just bring out the woman. It says bring them both out. So where, where's the man? And last time I checked also, usually adultery is done in secret and you, and you try to keep that on the down low as best you can. And so, man, it took a lot of work for the religious leaders in order to catch her in the act of adultery. Seems like there's a lot more going on in the desires of these religious leaders, obviously not really caring much about the law of God. But I want to highlight a few things in this or a couple things in this first theme. First of all, notice where they make her stand. Did you see that detail? They made her stand in the middle, in the center, most likely uh, surrounded by a group of men. And if they caught her in the act of adultery, then most likely she didn't have a chance to get her clothes on. If she does have any clothes on, it's hardly there. So, so part of a narrative and stories that we see all throughout the Bible, even specific, specifically in Gospels, is that the Gospel writers wants us to imagine ourselves in this story. And imagine how this woman would be feeling in this moment. Humiliated. Shame. Like we are to experience this. That's why this partly is here, so that we can identify and put ourselves in the story. Notice also that, that you see this all throughout the Gospels. There's, there's this difference uh, that the religious leaders and Jesus have in the understanding of the law. And it's a difference between means and end. So Jesus always viewed the law as a means, not an end in themselves. What I mean by that is for Jesus, the law exists as a means. You obey the law because you want to live what we call here the good life, a life that God intended us to live under his reign, in rule, in communion with him, and in harmony with his people. And the Bible paints a picture of a certain kind of life, and the law serves to mark out kind of borders and boundaries that protect it and make it clear. Jesus always saw the law as a means to this, not an end in itself. The religious leaders always saw the law as an end. The scribes, the Pharisees seemed to have missed out on this picture of the good life and found themselves obsessed with the law in and of itself. And the only thing that matters to them was who's in and who's out. 
Who's obeying the law and who's disobeying the law? Who's following the law and who's transgressing the law? They had an obsession with the law themselves and not the good that the law would point towards. So then therefore, with this idea as the law as an end in themselves, it creates in them this feeling or this experience of self-righteousness. It makes it really hard for them to see their own fault, their own sin, and their own hypocrisy. Example in point, they didn't bring the man out. They just brought the woman. So I think it's really important for us to kind of state the obvious here. And I know we probably know this, but it's good for us to be reminded of this. The number one killer of any culture of grace is self-righteousness. It's like finding dog poop on your shoe. I mean, it kills any environment, amen? Like, you smell it. It's like, this is really bad, and somebody needs to take care of it, right? I mean, it's, it is an amazing scent, not in a good way, right? Well, the same thing with self-righteousness. And here's what we've got to see, and I know this is really hard, guys, what we have to see first is that we have got to see that self-righteousness is at play in every single one of us. We never move beyond this. We never get to a place where we think we're not dealing with this. And if you ever get to a place where you think you're not dealing with it, then guess what? You're being self-righteous. There is something embedded in all of us where we have to feel better than someone else. Maybe... I'm not sure. Maybe one of the reasons why we love shows and videos where we see people make absolute fools of themselves, right? At one level, it's great to watch because we can laugh. And I think at a deeper level, the reason why we love it is because we think, well, they're an idiot, so I'm not as bad as them, so I must be somewhat okay, right? We have to feel better than someone else. And so the first step for us building a culture of a grace is to acknowledge and see self-righteousness in all of us and how it does kill a culture of grace. When we talk about this, it doesn't mean that the moral law of God does not have a place here, right? The ceremonial law, the civic law no longer is at play here, but the moral law of God is still at play here. In fact, if you, if you question that, go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews chapter 5 and 7, and you'll see Jesus taking the law very seriously. He's not taking it lightly. In fact, I would put before you that Jesus takes even sin more seriously than we do. And so the law and grace are not at odds with each other or one is not canceling out the other. But here's what I'm just trying to help us see, especially this morning, is what do we lead with? The religious leaders led with the law. The religious leaders led with, hey, she's not obeying here. And so then therefore, it made it really difficult for them to even see where they have messed up, see their own sin and see their own hypocrisy, which kind of creates this self-righteousness in us. I'm just trying to make us aware that we're not doing away with the moral law. We're just asking the simple question, where, what do we lead with? And notice when you know, Jesus addresses the woman's sin, and we'll get to this in just a minute, but when does she address it? When does he bring the sin up? 
This is not a trick question that's in the text. It's at the end. It's at the end. So look, if we're going to continue to cultivate a culture of grace here, we have got to be aware of our own self-righteousness. We do. It's at play in all of us. And look what happens here, starting at the end of verse 6, kind of leading into the second scene of this story. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. Notice, uh, first of all, what Jesus does not do, right? He doesn't yell at the religious leaders, which he had plenty of room to do that. And eventually he does get there, right? There, there, there's a passage of scripture later in Matthew where he kind of lets them have it. He doesn't do that first, nor does he look at the adulterous woman and go, come on, seriously, what are you doing sleeping with another, another person's spouse? Like, what, what, what in the world? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? I mean, seriously, do you not know what God wants to do with sex? I mean, are you serious? This is what you did. That's not what Jesus did at all. No, what did he do first? Say it out loud. What did he do first? He stooped down. He bent down. Why? Why, why does he bend down? Well, I'll put before you that one of the reasons why is because when you're in a standing posture, that's an accusing posture, is it not? And when you bend down, there's a way that you're trying to identify. And not only does he bend down, but then he starts scribbling in the sand. And so many of us, including me, want to know, what is he writing, Right? The writer of the story, man, could you not tell us what he was writing in there? There's so much speculation of what it was. Some believe that he was writing the sins of everybody in the group. Wow, that'd be a shocker, right? You know, it's like, well, that's a, oh, I didn't know John did that, right? It's like, well, I mean, but obviously we don't know if that was going on. Some say he was writing some Old Testament passage talking about hypocrisy. I don't know if that's what he was saying. Here's something that maybe possibly I put before you. The reason why he's writing in the sand is because he's wanting to distract the mob from the woman and take their attention off of her and put it on him. Yeah, definitely speculation. But it's something I think we believe that Jesus would do. Grace is not just a response of God. Did you hear that? Grace is not just a response of God, but grace is the essential nature of who God is. He gives and he gives and he gives, ultimately seen in the giving of himself. Verse seven, when they persisted, and questioning him, he stood up and said to them, all right, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. So with one question, Jesus is able to simultaneously take her sin seriously and also disarm this group here. And what did Jesus do here? He starts with examination, does he not? He says, take an inventory of yourself first. Who's without sin? Who in this group is sinless? If that is you, knock yourself out and throw the first stone. 
And what does everyone eventually do there in verse nine? Says it again, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Not sure about that, but if you've lived long enough, you get a little bit more recognizable of your own sin, right? Not to say that those that are young don't see it also, but there's something about older men that become more and more aware of their own sinfulness. But every single one of them dropped their stone and they left. Universal sinfulness is the great equalizer. Amen? Universal sinfulness is the great equalizer. In God's eyes, nobody is perfect. There's no bad guys and good guys in the eyes of Jesus. No, we're all messy. We've all messed up. We're all moral failures. None of us have arrived. Every single one of us in this room, including me, needs a savior. And his name is Jesus. There's a, a, a level playing field for all of humanity. And that level playing field is universal sinfulness. In a culture of grace, we are acutely and keenly aware of our own sin and, listen to me, our propensity to any sin. Are you, aware, are you, are you hearing me? Like, if we're creating a culture of grace, look at me, look, this is so important. Look, a culture of grace is people that are acutely aware of their sin, present tense. Not past, right? Yeah, you probably need to be somewhat, but the present tense and, and our propensity to any sin. And so, so I don't know where you are here. I don't know how it's landing on you, but, but we should not be shocked when someone sins, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian. <laughs> like we shouldn't gasp. Why, Lyle? Because we are aware of it in ourselves, the propensity to any sin. What did Paul say? And I'm kind of probably butchering a little bit here, but you need to take heed, you know, whenever you're confronting someone and, and trying to acknowledge someone, bring them out of darkness into light and whatever it is, but you need to kind of take heed of yourself first, lest you fall. You need to be aware of your own propensity to any sin, any sin. That's why one of the frames that we talk about here over and over, it's been embedded in this culture for 11 years. And, and sometimes some people get really frustrated with this phrase and, and people have left, honestly, over this phrase, to be real honest with you, had conversations with people about this. But this phrase is that the brokenness is the norm here, not the exception. Brokenness is the norm here. It's not the exception. All of us need to try to imagine ourselves as the woman. I know it's really hard. It's really hard for us to imagine ourselves as any person in this scene. It's hard for us to imagine ourselves as the woman here. Some of us, like, man, let's just be honest with us. We think, oh, I would never do that. I would never be caught in something like that. And it might be, you may not push that down really far, but I'm telling you, it's probably a play a little bit. So it's hard to identify yourselves with this, this adulterous woman. It's hard for us to identify ourselves with the religious leaders because they're always the bad guys. Like no one goes, nobody, you know, easily says, ah, oh, that's me, I'm self-righteous, I'm always hammering people with the law, I really think I'm, you know, whole. No, no one wants to identify themselves as the, the religious leaders, and we definitely don't ever identify ourselves with Jesus, right? It's like, oh, that's like, that's way out there, that's a little 
arrogant and prideful. And so I think what we think or what we see ourselves is we're like in a stands, right? We're in this arena and we're just watching it play out. Look, if we're unable to imagine ourselves as this woman, then listen to me, you will never experience the life-changing power of the grace of God in and through Jesus Christ. All of us in this room, including me, are sexually broken. None of us are whole. None of us are pure. Only Jesus is. And if, if we can't imagine ourselves and see ourselves in this woman, then listen to me, it'll be really difficult for you to experience the life-changing grace of God in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And not only that, it'll be really difficult for you to be experienced as someone who is gracious. Who's messed up in here? Who has moral problems in here? Who has addictions in here? Who's coming in here with secret sins? Who needs Jesus in here? Resounding answer to every single question that I just said is every single one of us. A culture of grace is created when we are acutely aware of our own sin and our propensity to any sin. Scene number three, look what happens here in verse 10. Such a beautiful picture here. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she said. And then hear these words, neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin. So what comes first for Jesus? What does Jesus lead with? Grace. He's the only person that speaks to her directly. Everybody else refers to her like in a third person. And when he uses the word woman, it's a term of respect in this time. Restoring to her and dignity and honor and worth as a fellow human image bearer of God. And what does he say to her? He says, where are they? First question, has no one condemned you? And then he says this, these words that are so impactful and powerful, neither do I sit with this. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus, God in the flesh, who knows this woman fully. Jesus, God in the flesh, who knows you fully right now, says these words to you. Neither do I condemn you. We cannot hear this enough. My prayer is that you would hear it afresh today. For all of those who are in Jesus, Jesus does not condemn you for your sins of the past, for your secret sins, for your current addictions, or any sin at all. He does not condemn you. In fact, he invites you to come to him. And when we do, he reminds us that you 
are forgiven, that there is now no condemnation for you. There is grace for you. You are safe with him. You are loved. When grace comes first, we don't ignore or excuse the sin, right? We don't, and Jesus doesn't do this. Because what does he say at the very end? Go now and sin no more. Don't hear this as, oh, this is your one chance. You come back again, you're getting slammed, right? Don't hear this as don't screw up again, right? Here's your one free out of, you know, free pass, get out of jail, free card, whatever the monopoly deal is. No, this is not how we're to read this. In fact, what this is, is an invitation. It's an invitation to a better way to live. Sin always, always brings death. And Jesus, as the one who is God in the flesh, knows this. He knows there's a temporary nature where sin may feel really good in the moment, but Jesus understands in the end, it always brings death. It never, ever brings life. And he's wanting to invite her into a better way of living. Listen, grace received is a power to live differently. Dallas Willard said it really well. Grace is opposed to earning. That's what it's against. It's not opposed to effort. Grace, actually, I would put before you, empowers effort, our work. Because as soon as I'm convinced that it doesn't matter if I get better, I will actually begin to get better. Does that make sense to you? Like when I become convinced that it doesn't matter if I get better, that God's love's not going to change, his forgiveness of me is not going to change. His acceptance of me is not going to change because all of that is rooted in Jesus, not in me. It's not about my performance. That's why the pressure's off. That's why grace is so hard for us to believe. It seems so, so crazy that it just can't be true. But if I actually really believe that it doesn't matter if I don't get better, it actually will empower me to get better. And if you think I'm crazy, this is what I think Paul's after in Titus chapter two, when he says this, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it. I wasn't great in English in high school, but I do what know a little bit about pronouns and modifiers, amen, a little bit. So what is it modifying? Say it out loud. The grace of God. And what does the grace of God do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Grace first teaches us to say no, not law, not rules. Grace first gives us a vision of who we could be in Jesus Christ. So creating a culture of grace here, we've got to recognize that self-righteousness will kill it. It's like dog poop on your shoe, all right? Maybe that's the one thing you remember from the sermon, amen? A culture of grace is a people who are acutely aware of our own sin and our propensity to any sin. That every single person we encounter, no matter who they are, needs as much grace as we do. And a culture of grace is a place where grace leads. It comes first. And granted, when I make that statement here, I know 
A lot of us, including me, kind of want to know, like, what does this look like? Like, we kind of want the, like the little manual. So if somebody comes to me and they're struggling with whatever sin, or they come to me and they blah, 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 or in my home and I'm dealing with my kids or dealing with my spouse, all right, what's grace first? What's, let me pull it out. Hang on a second. Oh, okay, all right, that's kind of, that's kind of what we want. And, I, and honestly, I wish I can give you, like, all right, here's the five steps to being grace first. I think the only thing I know after being a pastor for 30-some years and trying to be a dad and a husband is it's kind of messy. I probably get it wrong more than I ever get it right. And I don't, I don't think that's bad that it's messy. We're messy. We're pretty complex human beings. I think I heard a friend say one time how it's so hard to keep their house clean. It's got like five kids and they clean up one room. 15 minutes later, they come back to that same room. It's a disaster, you know? Anybody identify with that a little bit? Even if you don't have kids, right? And just even myself, I create a disaster. I clean it up and it's a big mess. I mean, one solution with the whole house being cleaner, you can just get rid of your kids, right? It's like, get them out the door. But we don't want that. Because all of us would agree this, that where there is life, there's probably going to be a mess. And so I want to be a church that has a lot of spiritual life going on. And I am convinced of this because I see it in the Bible that that does not happen by law first. It happens by grace first. Yeah, we need the spirit of God. We need wisdom. We need to be in the context of relationships so we can grow on how to navigate this. But I do want to be a church that when someone walks in this room and they experience us, it's like a breath of fresh air. That they feel a sense of relief. So, what's a good next step for me in relationship to all we've talked about? Let me give you three really quick, and then we're done. The first one is this. Um, I've never really given this as an application, so this is the first time ever. I'm going to encourage you to watch a movie. <laughs> so hopefully I won't get any bad emails, all right? If I do, that's fine. I'm okay with emails, too. Um, but I encourage you to watch Lady Miserable if you've never watched it. Now, granted, not great for smaller kids and even maybe younger teenagers. There are a couple scenes in there that are like, eh, you might want to fast forward through that or... Uh, just shows you some of the darkness of life, all right? It gets pretty dark there. But it is a beautifully written story that shows us the power of God's grace in and through Jesus that could be in your life. Like, he can change you. 
So may you watch that and make some connections. Yes, this is a fictional story, but it, it's got a, a beautiful gospel truth in that. And that beautiful gospel truth is that through God's grace in Jesus, you can be a different person. Secondly, be with Jesus. Dallas Willard talks about there are three kind of things, components to being a disciple of Jesus. The first one is be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then do what Jesus would do if he were you. And the only way you can do two and three is when you're doing one. Like be with him. Being with him is what we're doing today. When we're gathered together and we're singing songs and hearing the word of God, you may walk out of here and say, oh, I don't know what I got out of any of this. Well, guess what? That's fine. You don't know, but the Holy Spirit does. And he's doing something. But you continually gathering with his people, he's doing something in your life. And I'm just inviting you to continue that Monday to Saturday. Like we're not doing this to get brownie points with God. You've already got all you need from God in and through Jesus. But what we're wanting is we're wanting Jesus to get in us. And the only way that people will feel and experience the presence of Jesus from my life as a gracious person is when I am with him. So pick a gospel. Spend the entire year. Slow down. Read it slowly. Imagine yourself in those stories. And I don't think I'm making some kind of pastoral hyperbole. Just try it for 12 months. And I guarantee you, if you open yourself up to Jesus, you will be a different person in 12 months. You may not be able to see it because it's hard for us to see our growth. But I promise you, your spouse will, your friend will, your kids will. They'll experience you in a different way. And then lastly, and then I'm done. And I don't mean this to mount guilt on you in any way, but pay attention to what comes first for you. When you're trying to see change happen in your kid's life, what comes first? A law? A rule? I'm not saying there's not a place for those. Please hear me. Yes, you've got to have some boundaries. Yes. I just want you to pay attention. What comes first for you? And ask God to help you have faith and trust in the power of grace and how he can change someone in the very core of their being. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.